It's Thursday, July 19th, and this is The Daily Dive. We have another Russian agent in our midst. For nearly five years, a 29-year-old Russian political science student was a fixture at many important conservative events. Maria Butina is accused of conspiring to set up a back channel of communication between the Kremlin and the Republican Party, using the NRA as a conduit. Lauren Meyer, reporter for Axios, joins us to discuss who Butina is and how she infiltrated influential political circles. Next, with the rise of money transfer apps such as Venmo, once again, you better check those privacy settings. Venmo's default privacy setting is set to public, which means all your transactions are visible to everyone. Xavier Harding, reporter for Mike, joins us to talk about hiding all those payments to your friends for Uber rides and burgers. Finally, you've heard it before, watch what you post online. In this case, be careful posting bad reviews of your doctor online because they might fight back. Jane O'Donnell, reporter for USA Today, joins us to talk about doctors and hospitals suing patients for posting negative reviews and why it's almost always an uphill battle. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. What will be your foreign politics, especially in the relationships with my country? And do you want to continue the politics of sanctions? I believe I would get along very nicely with Putin, okay? And I mean, where we have the strength. I don't think you'd need the sanctions. I think that we would get along very, very well. Joining us now is Lauren Meyer, reporter for Axios. We have a new Russian agent in our midst. Her name is Maria Butina. She's a young 29-year-old redhead. She was just charged a couple days ago being a Russian agent. She was on a years-long mission to build ties between Russia, the NRA, uh, the Republican Party. She has possible ties to a few different unnamed Americans at this point. What can you tell us about Maria Butina? mentioned, she's a 29-year-old Russian national and was arrested on Sunday and later indicted on criminal charges of conspiracy and acting as a foreign agent. According to this FBI affidavit, she is accused of working to develop back-channel communications between the Russian government and the Republican Party, as well as the Trump campaign. She allegedly worked on this operation with her mentor, Alexander Torshin, who's also under investigation by the FBI. Torshin is a lifetime member at the NRA and attended exclusive NRA events with Butina. He's also allegedly an associate of Russian President Vladimir Putin. And how do they say she was infiltrating all these groups? Because she got very involved in the NRA, but she also was attending other conservative events like uh, CPAC and a few other ones. How did she get involved with all these groups? The Washington Post reported earlier this week that the FBI tracked her movements rather than uh, question her, which is not wildly uncommon when dealing with allegations against a foreign national. She apparently attended a ball at Trump's inauguration and tried to arrange a meeting between him and a Russian government official at last year's national prayer breakfast. She also has a history that appeals to many Trump Republicans. She allegedly grew up hunting in the wilderness in Russia and eventually moved to Moscow, where she began a career in public relations and founded a group called the Right to Bear Arms to advocate for the loosening of Russia's quite restrictive gun laws. That's how she was building that relationship with the NRA. And then there she met uh, an American, his name was Paul Erickson, who is a 
South Dakota-based Republican who really took it the next step that he was seen with her. They started a romantic relationship even, and he was the next part of getting her into all these other circles. Right. She allegedly attempted to offer various relationships in exchange for a position with this organization that she targeted. And this is likely one of the biggest intrigues for the U.S. is that she tried to gain access to a network of U.S. political influencers by cultivating these personal relationships with this Republican political operative who was also involved in the effort to arrange a meeting between Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin. It really just points to how sophisticated the Russian machine is. We've been doing a lot of stories, obviously, about the Russian meddling in the election, and there was just an indictment of 12 Russian agents on the cyber hacking front. But this is another front. You know, she's uh, over here trying to make in-person relationships, trying to steer policies, American policies, towards more favorable conditions for Russia. Absolutely. And it's really important to note that while Friday's indictments came from the special counsel, these charges against Butina came from the Justice Department's National Security Division, as well as the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. But the bottom line is that although these aren't directly linked, these covert activities over the past five years really highlight another component of Russia's massive influence operation in the U.S. There's also a congressman that might be involved, not necessarily involved in helping her do anything, but as you said, they set up her and her uh, mentor Torshin were um, setting up a lot of trips. There was a congressional delegation that made a trip to Moscow in 2015, and Representative Dana Rohrbacher was kind of alluded to in the indictments, but not named. He was one of the people that took a meeting with her and with Torshin as well. A lot of these new details reveal a very tangled web of meticulous coordination with Russian officials, including a primary Russian security agency and Russian oligarchs that date back to at least 2013. These documents show that she worked under the direction of a high-ranking Russian official to arrange introductions to people in the U.S. that have influence on American politics, such as congressmen. These court documents also indicate that the primary avenue of influence for both Putina and as I mentioned earlier, Alexander Torshin was the National Rifle Association. Her lawyer has said that she's just a student with interests in guns, and that's why all this stuff kind of came to be. But they have Twitter conversations, they have emails between Maria Butina and her Russian operatives that she was talking to. And they even, in conversations going back, that you've stepped upstaged Anna Chapman, who was another Russian agent who was arrested a few years ago. And they said, are people asking you for your autographs yet? Elevating her, a Prosecutors even said this leads us to believe that she's on par with other covert Russian agents that we've caught before. On top of that, and because of all those reasons, federal prosecutors say that she's a serious flight risk and should be held without bail where she's currently awaiting until her trial. This court filing cites the nature of these charges, her history of deceptive conduct, the potential sentences she faces, the strong evidence of guilt. I could go on and on. But all of this adds evidence of her being a flight risk. With all this news of other indictments and everything, it just proves how big the Russian apparatus is to really try to influence things here in America. Lauren Meyer, reporter for Axios, thank you very much for all that. Thank you. The study actually noted some of the most interesting Venmo users, which they call the humans of Venmo. She noticed drug dealers and one person they called the yellowest, and they were just eating and drinking so much soda and pizza. <laughs> 
Joining us now is Xavier Harding, reporter for Mike. There's been a huge rise in money transfer apps, Zelle, a couple of other ones. One of the main ones, I think one of the OGs is Venmo. I use Venmo. It's it's great for handing people money when you don't have cash on you. But there's this interesting thing that happens. We talk a lot about privacy and your data on this podcast. And Venmo does something interesting. Uh, their uh, default setting with your profile is always set to public. So whenever you're sending money, everybody can see it, really. Tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. So a researcher named Hong Duthi Duk, she was the one who pointed this out recently. She's a researcher based in Berlin. She's a former Mozilla fellow. She noticed that you know Venmo is public by default. There are three options. Private, so no one can see your transaction. You have friends only. Only, so only your friends and the friends of the person you're sending money to can see your transactions. And then there's public, so anybody with an internet connection can see your transactions. So that's the option that Venmo sets everyone to by default. If you never go into the settings app, the settings section of your Venmo account, all your transactions are just out there. So she noticed this and she found the site that you can use to just see all the incoming transactions that are going through Venmo at one time. And she cataloged them all. She Of all the, of all the transactions in 2017, she she took note of over 200 million. She pointed out the fact that you can notice interesting patterns when you kind of look at all the transactions at once. I'm not always on the Venmo app, but when I use it, I always take a little bit of time to kind of scroll through what people are doing. It's kind of one of my favorite things to do because it's it's fun. Yeah. You get to see what people are paying each other for. And very much so with noticing patterns or even to a smaller extent, just those one-time transactions that you see. I have my app open right now. People that I don't know, you know, they have their comments. So, so one is an emoji of a movie ticket. So they paid somebody back for getting them their movie, a cell phone and the little money flying emoji, you know, pay, payment for my cell phone bill, house payments, yeah. people put electric bill. You know, you can tell all this stuff that people are paying each other for and you can use it to deduce patterns about people, learn more about people. But that's not it because there's a lot of your public data that you don't know you're giving away, especially with Venmo, it links a lot of times to your Facebook profile and things like that. So I can troll around for a while and find out a lot about you and you will never know who I am. Exactly. I think one thing is interesting is that, you know, to sign up for Venmo, one option you have is to link your Facebook account. And the Facebook account profile photo shows up in this public website where you can just view all the transactions if you have it linked. So if you can look at the first name and last name, which are also available on this public site, and then you can also look at the Facebook profile photo, you can go to Facebook, cross-reference the name with the photo, and then learn way more about a person just from using, having those two pieces of information. You can find out where they live more accurately the area they reside in, maybe not the address, as well as you know their interests, who else they're talking to and hanging out with. The study was really interesting. The study actually noted some of the most interesting Venmo users, which they call the humans of Venmo. She noticed the drug dealers and one person they called the yellowest, yellow as in, you know, you only live once. And they were just eating and drinking so much soda and pizza. <laughs> and to the point where it calls into question, you know, if an insurance company saw this, could it possibly give you higher rates on like life insurance if they notice how poorly you're eating? You're giving that information out publicly. So it's not like you can say later, well, I was kidding or something like that. It's like, no, well, you know, yeah, we saw all of your transactions, basically. That's a huge point. I think the fact that, you know, this data becomes public. Once that gets out there, you can't put that genie back in the bottle. There was a, a Wall Street Journal article also recently made that takes into account some of this stuff. It says, if you make a mistake
take and payment to somebody also, good luck getting that back. It's as simple as typing one letter off on a person's name and then boom, you send it to the wrong person. And they talk about this person who got a mistaken payment from somebody and then decided to go and investigate a little bit. And they found out later that the person sent them a payment mistakenly. They researched them. Like, as you said, you know, it links back to a Facebook. You can find out more details from them. And they had made payment to another person for a quote unquote lesbian game. Later on, they were kind of embarrassed about it and they were trying to demand the money back. And you just got to be very careful with all this stuff. Luckily, Venmo puts measures in place so that there's at least a little bit of friction when you're paying some money to a new uh, user who's not part of your contact list. And luckily for them, they're able to get the money back if the recipient did not already cash out. When you're using these apps, you have to take the utmost care, especially when it has to do with your money. It's a simple fix. The uh, author of the study, Public by Default, they used Venmo's publicly available information to track all the transactions of all these users. What do we do to protect ourselves? One thing that users can do to protect themselves is very easy. Just go into your Venmo app, hit the little hamburger menu in the top left, and then you go to settings at the bottom, under uh, the privacy section. Hitting that privacy button, you see you know, public, friends, private, hit private, hit friends, take it off of public, do not let the internet see your transactions because who knows what that data could be used for down the road. Right, or what creeps are just trying to look who you're paying and what you're paying for. Keep uh, your pizza payments to yourself. <laughs> exactly. Xavier Harding, reporter for Mike, thank you very much for joining us. Take care, Oscar. you're at risk, I would recommend to anybody to be very careful when they're posting, because even if they aren't defaming the doctor or the hospital, they are still putting themselves at risk of being sued. Joining us now is Jane O'Donnell. She covers healthcare policy for USA Today. With the rise of social media, you can go onto sites like Yelp and get reviews for just about anything. In this case, people are reviewing their doctors and hospitals, and doctors are fighting back on patients who are posting negative comments. There's a bunch of sites, RateMD, HealthGrades. You can use Google reviews, Yelp, as I said, and people can post whatever they want, basically. Tell us a little bit about doctors fighting back against these negative comments. Right. Perhaps understandably, particularly if you have anyone in the medical field in your family, you could imagine that, that it must make them quite unhappy if they have a particularly disgruntled patient who is spending a lot of time, what they consider harassing what the patient might think is only fair uh, because they've had such a bad experience. So you could understand why the doctor or the hospital might be unhappy with this, but think about it from the other perspective or, or both perspectives, in fact. The patient who's been injured or got just very bad service. Yeah, there's not a lot of places you can really go to express your displeasure other than social media. I mean, you go to all those places because it's easy. It's easy to write a review and it's easy to say, hey, I went in for this and, and they gave me subpar treatment. But as you said, you know, a lot of times these doctors and hospitals will fight back. They'll sue you or they'll try to get your comments removed. Tell us about a few cases of doctors fighting back. Right. These doctors and hospitals have far deeper pockets than most of us. Oh, yeah. So when they want to come after patients, they can really fight it out in court and they can afford the best lawyers. Their hospitals have a vested interest in helping their doctors. So they're going after people like retired Air Force 
Colonel David Antoon. I became familiar with David Antoon last year. He had prostate cancer and he had prostate cancer surgery. As many people know, one of the side effects is incontinence and impotence. He alleges that the risks of that were very small and that his doctor stated that he had more experience than David said that his research shows that he did. And he has also started posting documents that he says showed that the doctor wasn't in the operating room during the time of his surgery. He was he was very injured in addition to becoming incontinent and impotent. Um, so this dragged on in court for, for almost 10 years. Wow. He has been in litigation with uh, the Cleveland Clinic and now the doctor since then because he was a relentless poster on social media. So they actually had him arrested. Criminal charges were filed against him for, first he was, there was a civil stalking protective order. And then they said that he violated that by posting on Yelp. He settled last week. I was out in Cleveland and they settled what started as a couple of felonies and a misdemeanor facing up to a year in prison. They settled for $100 in a minor misdemeanor. Wow. This is a guy who never had one speeding ticket in his life. And some of these other patients that we talked about, other cases involved a couple of different women who had posted things about being unhappy with their nose jobs. In both cases, it was nose jobs. <laughs> and these doctors are going after them, very wealthy plastic surgeons, because they say it's, it's done tremendous damage to their businesses. And then there's a hospital in Michigan where they sued the, uh, and this is a Facebook issue, where two daughters and a granddaughter of an elderly woman they say were mistreated are being sued for what they posted on Facebook about the hospital's treatment. What do legal experts say on how to protect yourself? I mean, you have, if you're posting something, opinions are okay, but you have to be factually correct when you're stating something about the service that you got. Yes. So you're at risk. I would recommend to anybody to be very careful when they're posting, because even if they aren't defaming the doctor or the hospital, they are still putting themselves at risk of being sued. And the doctors and hospitals usually can't sue websites like Yelp and, and whatnot because they're not liable for the postings of the users a lot of times. So they're going to come after you. They're going to come after right, the individual right. patients. Yeah. And they'll go after the site and, and say in what that, that the site, um, that one of these posts has violated the site's terms, which can be for pretty friendly. And keep in mind that a lot of these sites are, they're depending on these hospitals and doctors for advertising dollars. So you can imagine who some of them might side with in a dispute. Where should a patient go if uh, they have a complaint though? I mean, like I said, a lot of times somebody's going to default to some of their social media or a Yelp or something, put that negative review out there, said, I was very unhappy, but where should they be going first to express their displeasure? As somebody who's been a consumer reporter off and on for most of my career, the, the most important thing right away is to talk to the doctor. Unless if you truly don't trust this person, you know, if something is truly botched, you might want to go above them to the hospital or to a different doctor within the hospital. But um, you want to start and see if they'll fix it for you. It's very difficult to get an attorney to take a medical malpractice case. But if you think you have a very strong case, it's worth contacting one. Well, the recommendations always hold true. Be careful what you post on social media and review sites because they could always come back at you. Uh, Jane O'Donnell uh, covering healthcare policy for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. My pleasure. All right. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us a comment and give us a rating. 
follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.